I've done a bunch of these book events at think tanks, but I haven't done done them quite like this. Um, so we have Larry White, who's a very well-known monetary economist from nearby George Mason. He has a new book entitled Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin. And then we also have Dror Goldberg, also a well-known monetary economist from slightly further away, uh, the Open University of Israel. Uh, he also has a new book, and it's titled Easy Money, American Puritans and the Invention of Modern Currency. And both of these, I think, are quite topical for where we are right now, uh, especially in light of what the government is or isn't doing to guarantee uh, money in the banking system and outside of that, and the sort of, I'll call it a fight or a battle going on uh, against or with crypto and fintech firms. Um, so what we're going to do today that's a little bit different is that Larry and Dror are each going to discuss their own book as well as each other's book, uh, rather than have a whole panel of people up here and, and doing that thing. So that's what's a little bit different for me. Then we'll open up things for, for question and answers uh, from the audience here in person and also the folks who are watching online. So before we get started, just a couple of house cleaning, housekeeping items uh, first, for everybody who is here in person, please do make sure that your cell phones are either off or on silent. For those of you who are following along online, please remember that you can uh, submit questions, and we encourage you to submit questions, because I have an iPad, and I'll be reading questions from there as well as taking them from here in the audience. Um, also, you can follow along on social media using hashtag CatoEcon. And then finally, when we do get to Q&A, and I'll remind everybody of this, but just because I enjoy doing it twice, I'm going to do it now. Uh, I would ask that if you are called on to please briefly ask a question in the form of a question. <laughs> and also, if you could please ask a question related to the topic at hand, that would be wonderful. Um, so. Now I'll be quiet, and we're going to start off with Larry, but please help me welcome both Larry White and Jor Goldberg. Thank you, Norbert. So uh, my book, as Norbert said, is entitled Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin. So it's a head-to-head-to-head -to -head -to -head comparison among alternative monetary standards. Uh, it's a fairly short book. It's available on Kindle. Uh, there are six chapters. First chapter is Markets and Governments in the History of Money. So there's a bit of an overlap with the more historical uh, focus of Dror's book. But uh, my focus in that chapter is on market institutions that have arisen from the bottom up spontaneously. Uh, and it's a lot of uh, criticism of the state theory of money, which is still with us in one form or another. Uh, second and third chapters are about how the gold standard works. Uh, and I build a simple supply and demand model. So there is a, you know, a kind of Econ 101 prerequisite. Uh, but even if you can't read the charts, you can follow along in the captions because I s spell out the, the forces that through which a gold standard regulates itself. Uh, and I focus on the gold standard because, I mean, I could, we could call it a silver standard. The mechanism is the same. Uh, 
or a commodity standard to be even more general. But the idea is that the quantity of basic money uh, in a gold standard, of course, gold coins and bullion, are produced privately. There's a private minting industry, there's decentralized gold mining. In, uh, potentially, there are private mints. Uh, I published an article last year about historical experience with private gold mints in the United States. So I'm not talking about a gold standard run by central banks. I'm talking about a bottom-up, spontaneous, market-organized uh, gold standard. The, the second of the two chapters on gold is about common misconceptions and mistakes people make in thinking about a gold standard. And I criticize both the, the critics of the gold standard who make silly arguments against it, but I also criticize some supporters of the gold standard who make silly arguments in its favor. So possibly some people who have spoken here before. Uh, chapter four is about how a fiat standard works, so that's pretty standard uh, material for somebody uh, who's taken a money and banking course. But of course the thing about a fiat standard is that the quantity of money is not self-regulating. There's no market forces that regulate the quantity of money. It's up to the Monetary Policy Committee. And in principle, a fiat standard can give you wonderful behavior. It can replicate the performance, uh, the price level performance of a gold standard. But that's in principle. In practice, it hasn't been so successful, uh, especially as we learned in the last couple of years where inflation in the US rose to 9% year over year, in the Eurozone over 10%. So fiat standards have not proven uh, as reliable in practice as they look on the blackboard. Uh, the fifth chapter is how a Bitcoin standard works. So Bitcoin was launched in 2009 as an alternative currency, right? They call it a cryptocurrency, even though, of course, it's not a commonly accepted medium of exchange. Uh, it used to be a commonly accepted medium of exchange in the market for other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin was the thing you paid with and the prices were posted in, but even that role it has lost to stable coins denominated in dollars. So other cryptocurrencies are now priced and paid for in dollar, uh, dollars or dollar-denominated stable coins. But the suggestion that Bitcoin could be a monetary standard is what I examine. And then the last chapter is a head-to-head -head comparison between a Bitcoin standard and a gold standard in their operating properties. So in taking this approach of comparing alternative monetary standards, uh, I'm hearkening back to Hayek's uh, great pamphlet, The Denationalization of Money, where he thinks about alternative suppliers of money and what structure they might provide, what kind of promises, what kind of commitments they might make uh, to reassure their holders that they're not going to be disappointed by the performance of the money. And Hayek imagined issuers who would promise price level stability. They wouldn't be contractually bound to it, but they would promise it and they would be disciplined by information in the marketplace. Newspapers would keep track of their performance. This is an alternative to thinking about how to get better money only in terms of what kind of instructions can we give the central bank or what kind of rules can we impose on the central bank. 
and I'm not opposed to that line of inquiry, but here's an alternative. Think about how we can change the institutions to constrain uh, the issue of money. And this has become more salient lately because we have new entrants into competition among media of exchange, of course. Bitcoin is the most prominent, so I don't talk about other cryptocurrencies because Bitcoin is the only real plausible candidate. But there's also crypto gold now. You can buy a blockchain recorded claim to gold vaulted in Switzerland. There's Tether Gold, there's Pax Gold, which is the leader in this market. Now these are small potatoes so far compared to the market capitalization of Bitcoin. Uh, but as they perform well, as gold performs better than Bitcoin, uh, I expect them to grow. So I won't go into detail here about how the quantity of gold regulates itself. The way Bitcoin is designed, the quantity is predetermined. There's a pre-announced release schedule for Bitcoin. We know how many Bitcoins are going to be in existence at each date in the future which means that it's completely unresponsive to the demand for Bitcoin. When the demand for Bitcoin goes up, the only thing that can go up is the price. And when demand for Bitcoin goes down, the price goes down. And so Bitcoin is enormously volatile. Whereas a gold standard, to simplify it, you can think of in textbook terms as having a flat supply curve. That is, it keeps returning to uh, its trend purchasing power because if it's more valuable than that, miners dig a little deeper and produce more gold. There is a supply response, at least over you know, long horizons. So the historical performance of the gold standards has been pretty good. The historical performance of Bitcoin uh, is not too encouraging for its ad adoption as a commonly accepted medium of exchange. It's enormously volatile. Its volatility is like seven times greater than that of the exchange rate between dollars and gold or dollars and euros. And on a daily basis, it's up and down 7% a day. So it's not a good place to put your rent money. All right? It's too risky for that. So uh, if how would we get to one of these new monetary standards spontaneously? Well, I think it would take the breakdown of the fiat standards. They have an enormous incumbency advantage because money is a network good. People want to use the money that all their trading partners use. Uh, but in the event that fiat standards do break down, uh, and you know we see it in hyperinflations in a few countries around the world, fortunately only around 10% uh, in the euro and the dollar. But if things get worse, it's good to have a plan B. And I argue that uh, it's more likely to be gold than Bitcoin because gold is so much less volatile and it actually has a larger installed base now. More people are familiar and hold gold in monetary form, that is coins and bullion and ETFs, uh, than hold Bitcoin, like four and a half trillion dollars held by the public in monetary gold and or quasi-monetary since it's not money right now and only half a trillion in uh, Bitcoin. But there's one more possibility which I only hint at in the book. Uh, there could be something more like Hayek imagined, but on a blockchain platform. So people are now talking about flat coins. 
That is coins that don't peg to the dollar but peg to the CPI. And uh, disclaimer, I'm a consultant to one such project. So it's possible that uh, there could be a purchasing power stabilized non-commodity money uh, in the future. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But meanwhile, I'm not hoping for the breakdown of fiat standards, but it's nice to know what all our, our alternatives are. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So this is a very timely book, obviously, because of Bitcoin. But uh, in general, uh, it sets a new standard for books about monetary regimes. And anyone who wants to say anything insightful about gold, Bitcoin, or fiat money uh, should start with this book. So in the past two years, whenever I heard people saying that inflation is because of oil or greed or labor, I refer, to, I refer them to a Friedman's Free to Choose, uh, chapter nine or episode nine in case of the TV series. Start from there and then uh, try to make new or interesting arguments. So the same for Larry's book. Uh, it is a must read if you want to say anything uh, serious on the topic. It's a, it's a new starting point, I think, for everyone. It, obviously, it has some new arguments about Bitcoin. It also uh, summarizes much of the research of Larry and others over many years. The one thing I would emphasize more in the book is, uh, not surprisingly given my own book, is the issue of uh, legal tender. Uh, today, that's how it is called in law and on our paper money. Or as it used to be called, uh, public receivability, or uh, also known sometimes as the state theory of money. So Larry criticizes, as he mentioned in the beginning of the book, um, the state theory, and uh, in, its, in its extreme form, I totally agree with this criticism. So the state theory of money says, to paraphrase Friedman again, that uh, money is always and everywhere a government phenomenon. And Larry shows convincingly that this is obviously not true. But this is the extreme form of the state theory of money. The weaker uh, form of the state theory says that uh, it is true only for certain monies. And uh, my book, which I will get to in a few minutes, is about uh, the first such money in colonial Massachusetts. And it is relevant today because um, since 1971, when we lost gold, that's what we have. We have money that is a legal tender for all debts, public and private. That's what uh, it, is said. it says on the Federal Reserve notes. In the law, it actually says legal tender for debts, taxes, and other sorts of monetary obligations. So without gold and with legal tender status uh, for taxes, um, I support the, the, the weaker, the, the more narrow view of the state theory of money that says that when gold is out of the picture, when anything of commodity value is not relevant, then maybe this is important. So I think more reference to that in the context of post-1971 money can be helpful. And so here uh, many are uh, obviously libertarians, and uh, if you don't like fiat money, then uh, you should uh, know your enemy. There is a lot about uh, know your customer, so I say to you, know your enemy. And if your enemy is fiat money, and for a good reason, 
I think that even 2% inflation uh, target is, uh, is an outrage. Uh, if you want to know your enemy, you better know it uh, pretty carefully. So um, try to think how this legal tender status for taxes prevents, let's say, Bitcoin from taking over. A few months ago, the small country of Croatia uh, stopped producing its national currency, the kuna, and switched to euro. How did it do it? The government did not confiscate the 30 million units of physical kuna, notes and coins, did not confiscate. It did not force all the sellers in the marketplace to accept euro. What it did was simply uh, it stopped producing the kuna and it declared the euro to be legal tender in Croatia. Now, if you go to the very uh, uh, unsophisticated uh, Bitcoiner approach, which obviously Larry isn't. Larry, as I mentioned yesterday on social media, he's the responsible adult in the room. But uh, the more uh, naive, narrow view of Bitcoin would actually say that once Croatia stopped producing Kuna, then it should have become an even better currency. Why? Because we hear from many Bitcoiners, all you need is a fixed or bounded supply and a network effect. Well, the Kuna has been circulating in Croatia exclusively there for 30 years. All 4 million Croatians were used to it. And now, because the government decided to kill it and stop producing it, uh, well, you have the, your upper bound, uh, your fixed supply. So with the naive Bitcoin logic, you would say that by uh, deciding to kill the Kuna, the government actually made it a better currency than before. Now, if you take the legal tender approach like I do, then reality is far more uh, easily explainable. <laughs> the government made the Kuna legal tender. Croatian taxpayers cannot uh, stick to the Kuna because the Croatian tax authority would not accept it. And just like they don't accept Bitcoin, that's why Croatians, uh, perhaps unfortunately, have to move to the euro with a higher inflation rate. So I'm not a supporter of uh, fiat money in principle. I mean, I don't have an ideology. I, I like uh, low inflation. I know it's not easy with fiat money, but uh, it's a very powerful tool, this uh, tax acceptance by the state. And this is something that libertarians better not uh, um, ignore, because if you ignore it, it is hard to defeat it. And if you want to defeat it, then you have to learn this mechanism. Now, this mechanism, um, it is more effective if tax collections are larger and frequent. If they are large and frequent, then firms and uh, individuals have to obtain this legal tender currency uh, often, even if they want to do everything else with Bitcoin, they, simply have to con they would simply have to convert their Bitcoin all the time in order to pay taxes. You know, tax payments, uh, it's not just once a year. So the bigger the government, uh, the smaller the chances of Bitcoin and other private currencies. So if you want to promote Bitcoin, um, you should uh, perhaps, first of all, eliminate the welfare state. Because if the government was as small as it was in uh, the year 1900, private money would have had a better chance. With the, tax collection, with the taxes uh, small and uh, maybe infrequent, you could do most things without the government's money. But now with the government uh, controlling 
you know, 30% of GDP and having millions of employees uh, paid with this money, it's more difficult. So uh, fighting the welfare state and promoting private currency, uh, I don't know if you have separate departments for that here, but these issues are related. And uh, this is something important to keep in mind. Actually, we know that low taxes, low infrequent taxes can prevent the state theory of money from uh, working. How do we know that? The money changes in the temple. So uh, Easter was not uh, too long ago. There were money changes in the temple because the very frequent small Jewish temple tax was paid only in special coin. And they needed money changes because this money did not circulate in the economy. So they, uh, people came with the Roman coins to the temple, converted it to the special uh, coin made in another country, and then paid the special temple tax. So it was legal tender for this temple tax, but it didn't circulate in the economy because taxes were small and infrequent, only up to three times a year, that's all. So that's about legal tender. And now I'll talk about my own book. So I was interested in this uh, mechanism. How come we have this uh, idea that the government can support its money, not by gold, but simply by accepting it for taxes? And I came across a reference to Adam Smith. So it's true that uh, MMT champions this uh, idea now. Not everything that MMT says is wrong. Actually, MMT is dangerous because they are correct on this one. Uh, they are correct. They, the governments can print as much money as they want, and we, the taxpayers, will still have to obtain it somehow, mostly by selling goods and services for it. So MMT is correct on this point, and they took it, just like me, from Adam Smith, who writes about it. So I read what he wrote, and it turns out he did not write about it uh, theoretically. He wrote about the paper money of the American colonies. So I went to look, you know, who was the first. Turns out the first was uh, Massachusetts in 1690. It wasn't just the first. You can be first, but not consequential like the uh, arrival of the Vikings to America a thousand years ago. It was first, but it was not consequential. Columbus was consequential. 1690 Massachusetts was both the first and consequential. All the American colonies imitated it. Eventually, the continental dollar of the revolution was supposed to be backed also by taxes, also by a Spanish coin, but also by taxes. It didn't quite work that way. The idea spread to France in the revolution and then to uh, Great Britain in the Napoleonic Wars. And since then, the idea has become well known. When there's war, you print money. How do you support it? Well, in the American colonies and in Great Britain during the Napoleonic Wars, you simply make it legal tender for taxes. Maybe for some debts as well, but that's not uh, necessary. And you had it in the Civil War. Both sides did it. And after all the turbulence of the 20th century, since 1971, that's what we have again. So Massachusetts uh, was the first and consequential, and then the question was, why did he do it? Well, Massachusetts, as you might know, Puritan Massachusetts was not a libertarian place. Far from it. Two months uh, before issuing this novel money, they actually uh, shut down the first newspaper in America, 
because they had war with French Canada, the first war with Canada, and uh, they didn't want the news, obviously. Now, they had to pay soldiers who came back from trying to occupy Canada. They could have uh, printed paper money. That was, in itself, paper money was not something new. Canada itself did it five years earlier with playing cards. They improvised money from cards. And everybody knew what Marco Polo wrote about China. The great uh, Han prints paper money, and anyone who refuses it gets executed. So methods of issuing paper money and forcing it on the population, that was well known, and they knew about Canada that had the same method. What was different about Massachusetts is that it did not force the paper money on soldiers or on sellers in the markets during a military emergency. That was the unusual thing. And that made me look into the reasons why it happened. Because again, wartime, not a libertarian place, and a very kind of a hands-off approach to money. We print bills, and if you want, you can accept it. We will accept it back for tax payments, but you don't have to. So I started a, a process that actually took too many years. Why did they do it, and how did they do it? So as for the why, so there was this uh, constitutional moment when they lost the charter because of uh, problems with England, and they were about to get a new charter. And part of the reasons they lost the charter was because they operated the mint. So they couldn't, uh, during this very, very particular moment in 1690, they couldn't uh, issue anything that looked too much like uh, money. They obviously couldn't issue coin. Um, but they couldn't even issue paper money and force it on everyone like Canada had done five years earlier. So that was a constitutional problem. Uh, that's about the why. Why did they do it? Uh, now, that's not enough because many, many governments in the early modern period had problems of paying to soldiers and uh, actually most of them failed. And then the soldiers mutinied, defected, plundered the towns of their employers. Why did Massachusetts come up with this idea? And this was actually a very uh, revolutionary moment in the history of money. Because until then, money was either gold or tobacco, as in Virginia, or paper money that was somehow backed by commodities. Either a bank promised to redeem paper for gold, or the Chinese and Canadian governments forced sellers in the markets to sell goods for paper. And Massachusetts did something very different. It said, well, this is a paper, and the only thing that gave, it, uh, that gave it life was its circulation into the state's treasury and out of it. No reason uh, to relate it to any commodity, directly or indirectly. So how did they do it? So there is no uh, method of analyzing monetary and financial innovation. So what I did, I took uh, ideas of uh, Joel Mokir, uh, an economic historian, at least uh, one of you knows him here. And uh, he has ideas about, he analyzed why innovation happens uh, for, um, he analyzed the Industrial Revolution, so technological innovation. Later he analyzed the cultural uh, innovation. So he looks at the ability of the people involved. And the people involved in this case were Puritans. And they were different from most immigrants. Now, as a total outsider, I have no uh, regional or theological bias 
I'm as objective as, a, as an alien from another planet. And you cannot deny that the Puritans were different. Uh, they came for religious reasons, so some were poor, like in other colonies, but others were middle class and rich. And uh, they had intellectuals, they had dozens of uh, university graduates, and within a decade they established Harvard, which is an amazing achievement. I don't think anywhere on the, in history uh, a colony established a college within a decade. And college was important because at Harvard they studied Plato and Aristotle and their contemporary, Hobbes. And uh, these uh, three individuals had ideas about money not having to be metal, money relying on law. Hobbes actually writes explicitly that money gets its uh, vitality by being circulated into the treasury and out of it. He did not yet suggest to do it with paper money, but he wrote that this is the key point, Hobbes, from uh, 1651. So that's why uh, Harvard is important. And Massachusetts was also the mercantile hub of all of English America. And it was, in some sense, like Wall Street. So the most sophisticated financial ideas were in Boston. In all of English America, from Barbados to Maine, all this area, uh, Boston was the thing. And these merchants, they controlled much of the government. And I show in the book that they definitely had an ability um, to come up with a new concept of money. I also showed that in the 60 years leading from the foundation of the colony to the invention of legal tender money, Massachusetts was way ahead of other colonies. They, uh, before that, they made a wampum legal tender and bullets, and uh, some private IOUs uh, were kind of uh, promoted, and of course, they were the only colony to mint their own coins. So they were different from everyone, and consistently so for 60 years. And in a moment of crisis, they managed to come up with something completely new. And the uh, last point I will mention, and if someone wants, I can get back to it later. In the same law that they invent this legal tender uh, non-convertible money, they also founded the first open market committee. So they had a committee of five merchants issuing this money with the uh, uh, significant influence uh, on the quantity, even the denominations. And the most interesting thing uh, to say here in DC is that this committee had uh, three people representing the public sector, executive and legislature, and two private individuals, three to two, which I found to be very, very similar to the FOMC ratio of seven to five. And I think it's not a coincidence. I think these checks and balances between public sector and private sector, that's part of the American DNA. Again, that's what I think as a foreigner. And um, finally, the US hit it, hit on this idea back in 1935 when the FOMC was created with this particular balance after uh, three failed experiments in central banking. The first and second banks of the United States in Philadelphia were too centralized. The original Federal Reserve was too decentralized. And in 1935, probably without understanding that they were resurrecting something old, they hit upon this FOMC where the private sector is important, but the public sector can overrule it with a slight majority of the public sector. It's not a coincidence. I think it is something deeply American. And again, if you want, I can expand on it later. That's it. Thank you.
Uh, Drawer's book is a remarkably detailed dive <clears throat> into the history of the issue of the irredeemable legal tender paper currency by the Massachusetts colony, uh, and not just in 1690, but in subsequent years as well. But it, it, it isn't just that. It uh, examines the surrounding colonial economies and the monetary and financial technologies of the day, what ideas were around. It's briskly written. It contains engaging anecdotes, biographical asides. Uh, it's really a pleasure to read. It's remarkably wide-ranging, and there's more to it than you would suspect from the focus on uh, 1690 Massachusetts. And it's guided by a very sensible theory. And by sensible theory, I mean uh, Drawer does not fall prey to the problem of the artist who falls in love with the model he's painting. Uh, it's a history of irredeemable uh, legal tender money, but it's not a celebration of it. He's quite clear in the last chapter about the proneness to abuse. <laughs> that such money has. Um, <clears throat> Drawer mentioned uh, just now DNA metaphorically, but in an unexpected twist, uh, I want to add an anecdote that's not in the book. I have a literal DNA connection to the story of the Massachusetts bills of credit. Uh, through mo no fault of my own, I'm descended, uh, I think 13 generations later, from one resolved white who, as a boy, crossed the ocean on the Mayflower with his parents, William and Susanna White. Uh, my family lived in Massachusetts up until my grandfather's time. He was a Congregationalist until, in a scandal, he converted to Methodism. Uh, but Resolved White had a younger brother named Peregrine White, Peregrine for traveler, who was born on the Mayflower uh, when it was docked off of Cape Cod before they proceeded to Plymouth Rock. Uh, in 1706, Peregrine White's son, uh, who also was named Peregrine White, although he's not called Junior for some reason, Peregrine White Junior was a member of a group who, uh, including his teenage son, who got into legal trouble for counterfeiting Massachusetts colony bills of credit. And they were the first convicted counterfeiters in the area that's now the United States, as far as I know. So interest in private money goes back a long way in my family. Uh, you can read about this episode in the history of the American Banknote Company, but there are other sources, too. Uh, more seriously, there's a, an obvious overlap between my book and Drawer's in that we both talk about fiat money. But you might have noted that he doesn't use that term. <laughs> uh, I've got it in my subtitle, and he prefers to re refer to legal tender currency, and implicit is that it's irredeemable legal tender currency, because of course a gold coin can also be legal tender. So it's not just printed on paper, but it's irredeemable for precious metal, and it's also legal tender. And a legal tender doesn't need, as he's emphasized, doesn't need to be a forced tender. It doesn't need to be compulsory in spot transactions. Actually, uh, uh, Will Luther and I have a paper showing that in the case of Somalia, after the government broke down, there was no longer anybody collecting taxes 
in Somalia shillings, and yet they continued to circulate. So they were launched by being acceptable for taxes, but once they achieve the expectation that people will continue to trade for them, they can continue to circulate even after the government disappears. So uh, is there anything important in this label, fiat? Uh, etymologically, of course, a fiat means a decree. Back when God spoke Latin, he said, fiat looks, let there be light. Uh, so fiat money is money by decree. Uh, but if you get to the last chapter of the book, uh, and if you look at the list of references, uh, Drawer has an article many years ago in the JMCB, the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking, entitled Famous Myths of Fiat Money, and fiat money is in sneer quotes. Uh, and what he emphasizes there, and this is quite interesting, is that lots of economists have used the term inaccurately to refer to all kinds of things, uh, to cases of non-commodity money not even backed by legal decrees or tax receivability, uh, cases of model constructions that don't have any institutions at all, let alone governments. So he's objecting to that misuse of the term or indefinitely extensible use of the term fiat money, uh, that it's been become ambiguous and a source of confusion and therefore better avoided. Plus, he mentions in the book, it was used as a term of abuse or with derogatory overtones in the Civil War by the opponents of the greenbacks. They liked to refer to it as a fiat money to suggest that it was only established by coercive mechanisms. And of course, it was established by a coercive mechanism, which was that even debts contracted in gold dollars before the war were made repayable in this paper money that the creditors didn't want. So why do I use the term fiat money? Well, I'm old enough to, return, uh, to remember when the term fiat well, to use the term fiat marked you as a weirdo <laughs> because mainstream monetary theory just, you know, took it for granted like a fish doesn't know it's in the water. Uh, and so there wasn't much discussion about alternative monetary standards. So it was only gold bugs who used the term fiat money <laughs> to refer to the status quo. Uh, but then Bitcoin came along and suddenly there's a new generation, this really warms my heart, who understand and correctly use the term fiat to distinguish what they're interested in from uh, the status quo. Uh, and that's my audience, gold bugs and Bitcoiners, so I use the language that they talk in. Uh, plus, fiat money is shorter than non-commodity legal tender money. But I don't think there's a substantive disagreement here. Uh, Drawer rightly focuses on the tax decree, right, where the government says, you must pay us taxes, and we will accept these otherwise useless things we are issuing uh, for that purpose. In the book, he asks rhetorically, quote, who needs gold when you have taxes? Meaning, who needs it to provide a basis for giving a paper currency value? Well, he's got a point. I mean, we have to grant that decades after Bretton Woods ended, let alone centuries after 1690, that a positive valued fiat money can exist, can survive. Okay, sometimes it blows up, but not always. Uh, before 1971, not all economists were sure about that. Uh, but it's clear fiat money can survive. So 
The case for a gold standard has to be a case based on prudence, as Deirdre likes to say, uh, not a case based on some epistemic necessity uh, or ontological necessity. Right? There can be fiat money. The question is, how well does it work compared to the alternatives? And I think Dror is right that it's, uh, it's going to be tough to return to an alternative standard. Uh, early in the book, he comments, quote, by completely releasing the quantity of money from the supply of metal, governments that imitated Massachusetts obtained unprecedented political and economic power. And that's the crooks of it, the power. Uh, Dave Barry, in his Dave Barry's Guide to Money, I think kind of put his finger on it. He said, all the governments in the world, having discovered that gold is like scarce, decided to back their money with something easier to come by, <laughs> namely nothing. Uh, and that's going to be very difficult to persuade them to give that up. But uh, in a nutshell, as George Selgin and I argued years ago in an article entitled A Fiscal Theory of Government's Role in Money, uh, this power, this power to create purchasing power with a printing press, uh, is why fiat money finally took over and why the gold standard was shunted aside. And it will take some, you know, convincing that there are prudential reasons uh, to return to something more solid. Thank you. Thank you both, gentlemen. We're going to move on to Q&A, and we will take questions from the audience and online. Through our online audience, you may join the conversation and submit questions directly uh, off the webpage, the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using Cato, hashtag CatoEcon. Larry, I actually already answered one of the online questions here. so. Uh, and we do have uh, somebody coming around with a microphone if anybody has a question. Here we go. Oh, I didn't see you, Nick. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Stan Lee, one thing I haven't uh, heard you mention that is all new money is debt. That uh, money comes into the money supply with either a bank making a loan, creating a debt, or the Federal Reserve in quantitative easing, buying government bonds, but then the government has created a debt for the Federal Reserve, and that debt is eventually retired. But that debt is only supplied because someone is buying something. In other words, something is being manufactured, a good. A bank will, won't let you lend you money unless you're purchasing a house or a car. So the money, in, in essence, is backed by production. And as you pay back the loan, the money is retired, and the production good depreciates. In other words, uh, if there was no production, soon our money supply would go down to nothing. So doesn't money really have a backing where metals such as gold and cryptocurrency really has no backing because nothing is being produced to back it? Larry. Um, money produced by banks is a debt. Bank notes are debts. Demand deposits are debts. So I'm with you that far. 
But under our current system, money produced by the Federal Reserve is not a debt. You can't redeem it for anything. They have no obligation to repay it in anything other than more units of the same stuff. So it is completely unbacked. Uh, metaphorically, in the sense of having any redemption fund. You can use the term backing in a more metaphorical way to mean anything that supports the use of a money, uh, but then every money that circulates has to be backed by something. But there isn't any link between the amount of production in the economy and the amount of, well, they call them liabilities, but they're not really liabilities, the number of monetary units listed on the liability side of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. In the case of a private banking system, yes, there is, right? Because as you say, they're financing production mostly, uh, and they want their loans to be repaid, and so there is some linkage, but not in the case of fiat money. So uh, in some sense, you can say that fiat money is backed by taxes, so there is this uh, tax payment that gives fiat money value. It's its value will not drop to zero as long as the state collects taxes, but it is a backing of a, of a very evil nature. So the government can, can double the money supply, your taxes calculated as a percentage of your income, let's say, they will also double in size. So you will pay a double amount of taxes in paper money, and it only means that the money will keep circulating, but there's nothing in the, this tax backing that will pin down the value, that will prevent inflation. So the government, in, with this mechanism, both uh, guarantees the circulation of money and keeps its ability to have hyperinflation, if it so chooses to. Bert. Um, yeah, Bert Ely. Uh, I'd like to come back to the United States. Uh, with U.S. currency, which is fiat uh, currency, you do have the, the right uh, to take that fiat currency and uh, either directly or through a bank buy interest-bearing uh, treasury debt. And so I would suggest that as long as a, there is the, the holder of a currency has the option of buying uh, in the marketplace uh, at a, an effectively a market rate of interest, uh, debt issued by the interest-bearing debt issued by the government, that it really is not truly fiat money because it effectively is backed by your right to buy interest-bearing debt at the face value of that debt. Was that a question, Bert? Yeah. <laughs> well, let me put it in a question. Do you well, agree that that's the case? Do you, do you agree that that's the case? Well, uh, no, if I not, why not? I don't agree that it uh, in some sense backs the currency because, as you said, you can buy it at the market price. So there's, there's no redemption of the currency for bonds. You have the option to purchase government bonds. You have the option to purchase private bonds. You have the option to purchase any number of assets at their current market prices. That doesn't do anything to pin down the value of the money you're buying it with. Anybody? Okay. Sorry, Bert. <laughs> Deidre? Yes. Hi, I'm... Uh, my name is McCluskey, Deirdre McCluskey. Has there ever been a human society 
that hadn't had uh, a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. That, that has or has not? Has not. Had. It has not. That was a question, Bert. Uh, hunters and gatherers. Well, as far as I know, the, the ones that are mostly autarkic are, you know, producing like a firm, and they're occasionally trading, but there isn't any single commonly accepted medium of exchange. They're trading, you know, arrowheads for pottery over here and something else for something else over here. So there is trade, there is barter, but there isn't a something that people acquire simply in order to trade it away later, and that's what we call a medium of exchange. So we, we look through the archaeological sites, and we don't see any object in hordes or tombs uh, in, in hunter-gatherer societies that would play that role. Later in agricultural societies, we do. What do you think we find? sites, not just Homo sapiens, but Homo erectuses, the, anyway, the, the earlier version of us. There are great masses of um, so-called Auschelian hand axes, which weren't actually axes, but they're called that. And there are piles of them, uh, not just three or four, but Hundreds, <laughs> and that's a very common archaeological find. So maybe they weren't being used as stores of value, but it sure looks like it. And 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 as far as exchange is concerned, the earliest Homo sapien societies in which we can get any handle at all exchange with other tribes. So I I. I uh, I don't think you're right. Well, uh, there is the kibbutz. The kibbutz didn't need money in Israel. There were these hundreds com of communities that uh, people didn't have money. They yeah. didn't have bank accounts. They did everything uh, like a family. Who didn't? Uh, who, the kibbutz. Who, uh, the kibbutz sure in Israel. Who? A, a commune. A commune, the kibbutz. Commune does not. Well, it had cr credit, though. Sorry? It had credit, which acted like money. In the kibbutz, they had nothing. It, uh, it was a small commune. It operated like a family. Well, yeah, indeed. I suppose, in a, I, I suppose the answer to my, my question is that in a group of friends or a, f a, a family, mm -hmm. and if a small group of hunter-gatherers acts like that, then there isn't any need for money, and I think that's an important point. Right here, Nick. Uh, other Nick. Multiple Nicks. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on where money could be going uh, from here. So uh, as money becomes increasingly digitized, as we see the rise of uh, central bank digital currencies, um, and also, uh, do you see money taking on an additional role beyond medium of exchange and store of value, uh, becoming a means of surveillance and possibly even a, a means of control? 
Well, uh, the digitization of money go back, goes back a long way. So we know that in 1200 AD, <laughs> banks were keeping accounts for people by writing their account balances in digits on a piece of paper. So that's digital money. It's the account balance that represents the spendable money of the owner, not anything physical. Uh, but sure, uh, when the electric telegraph comes, now we have digital balances that can be spent remotely. Nobody has to visit the bank. Uh, and today, it's very quick. Uh, central bank digital currency in the usual model of it is everybody can have a bank account on the books of the Federal Reserve System. And that certainly is a pathway to surveillance. I mean, you, your bank account is not as private as you might think now. But at least uh, the federal authorities don't have real-time access to every check you wrote uh, and don't know where you spent it and where you received your money from. With a central bank digital currency, they could. And that, of course, is the purpose of the system that's being implemented in China. It's being implemented precisely in order to surveil people and to restrict their spending on things that are not approved. So that's certainly not a model we want to emulate in the United States. And there is the danger, um, not that anybody at the Fed wants to be in the surveillance business, but they will be pressured by other federal agencies that do want information about their customers. And the Fed is not in a position to resist them. I think that uh, emphasizing the US is important because I don't think in any other countries there will be enough uh, resistance to that. I think in the U.S., uh, led by Cato, you might uh, be able to put up a good fight and prevent it. In other countries, I don't see it happening. Thank you, guys. Did you? Hi, thanks. Um, Karthik Balasubramanian from Howard University. I wanted to ask about your thoughts about the divisibility problem. Um, you can make the case that um, both both fiat or both uh, gold and uh, fiat money as it's currently implemented preclude a lot of kind of uh, the next, uh, a lot of business models for the 21st century. So basically anything under $5, for example, you can't really transact um, without physical cash. Um, and kind of wanted to get your thoughts specifically on this on this problem and kind of whether we essentially need to move towards uh, more of a crypto based uh, crypto based medium of exchange model so that we can actually have some of these uh, business models thrive. Thanks. So the traditional divisibility problem, if you go back in monetary history, was a problem of making coins small enough. And you can't make a gold coin small enough for a tiny transaction because, you know, eventually it gets lost between your fingernails. Uh, and so we had subsidiary coinages, silver and copper. Once we invented banknotes, that problem was solved. The visibility was no longer a problem. You can make tokens and banknotes in as low a denomination as you want. And of course, account balances can be infinitely subdivided. You're not limited to two decimal places beyond the point. So what you're really pointing to is a micropayments problem. And for micropayments, and for retail payments generally, 
the efficient solutions lie in private enterprise. I don't know what the best technology is, but they'll figure it out, and competition will weed out the inefficient providers. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't seem to me it needs to be crypto. It can be denominated in whatever the unit of account is. Sure. I'm going to take one of the online questions uh, and throw it to both of you. Uh, isn't Bitcoin a better standard than gold because it is least controlled by government? Governments have suppressed gold many times. Uh, I think that uh, governments can also suppress Bitcoin in some sense. Uh, if the US government decides to treat uh, Bitcoin like Iran and uh, blacklist any financial institution that gets close to it, that can make a difference. If the Fed uh, starts uh, speculating in Bitcoin, buying and selling huge amounts day after day, that can make a difference. Uh, I don't think Bitcoin is immune to government action. Maybe unfortunately, I mean, I'm not, not taking a position on that. I agree with that. Uh, I mean, there is a point. It's true that governments took us off gold standards because they, in the US, they got people to turn in their gold. And even if individuals didn't all turn in their gold, the banks all had to turn in their gold, and that was not so hard to enforce. Uh, so that is a problem, but as Dror said, it's a problem for Bitcoin too. If a government wants to, it can drive it underground, make it illegal to advertise that you accept Bitcoin, and you make it difficult for Bitcoin to become a commonly accepted medium of exchange. It, you can't suppress it completely, even in China, where it's illegal, people who want privacy, some people who, who know how to do it, will transact in Bitcoin, but it takes a certain amount of sophistication to know how to do that. Uh, most people like to use exchanges because they're convenient and remind them of banks. You can't have exchanges and banks openly, then you're gonna limit the use of Bitcoin to people who have a certain amount of savvy about uh, how to avoid the roadblocks. So, yeah, unfortunately, governments can drive Bitcoin underground, too. One might argue they're trying to right now. Yes. <laughs> there seems to be a campaign uh, against banks that have any friendliness toward the crypto space. Yeah. Do you have another on, in, in the audience? We have time for probably, this might be our last question, but I am Benjamin Kay. I, I think I have one for each of you. So my question about the, I think you call that the CPI pays currency, about the, the one that uh, is stable in the CPI, is, is that a form of algorithmic stable coin and um, has the recent, can I call it non-success of algorithmic stable coins um, made you skeptical about the, um, how that's gonna go? And my question for Drawer is, my understanding from Graeber's book is that one of the origins of our money uh, in the human experience is paying soldiers. And um, I guess you know, we could talk about whether or not that's free, but do you think that if you sort of, if the state acts to both pay people and receive and, and redeem that salary um, at official sources, do you, would you qualify that as a voluntary money or an involuntary money? Like, how, how do you think about that within your framework? Thank you. This is actually good. The first question was one that somebody submitted, basically, so. Yeah, so uh, a flat coin that has a supply response to its per own purchasing power 
it's algorithmic in the sense that it's programmed. There needs to be a data feed. There needs to be an oracle to tell it what the market price is and to tell it what the CPI is, if it's going to be responding to the CPI. But it doesn't mean that it's designed like Terra, which was algorithmic in the sense of having a really bad program <laughs> where its value was supported by its uh, twin coin uh, and it derived its value from being bought and sold by this other coin. And when the other coin fell in value, Terra became completely uh, infeasible. So no, it's a very different design from that. Um, it, it needs to be programmed to be, you know, not discretionary, not centralized. So there will be, you know, public source code where you can see how the response mechanism works. But it's inspired by a couple of things, by the mechanism behind the long-run stabilization of gold under a gold standard, and operationally by the kind of uh, model that Bennett McCallum put out as a way of regulating the issue of dollars in response to changes in nominal income. Uh, so it's, nobody wants to call it an algorithmic stable coin, <laughs> but it's a supply responsive or elastic supply uh, flat coin. Um, about soldiers, you cannot really force soldiers to accept any type of money. You can write it in law, but you cannot really force them because they are many and they are the ones holding the guns. It's that simple. It's a good point, George. On that note, uh, thank you all very much for coming and uh, thank you, Larry and George, very much. <laughs>